really, at first, uh, the king of Arad was winning. Look at verse 1. And then Israel makes this promise in verse 2. If you will indeed deliver this people to my hands and I'll utterly destroy their cities. And so God did and they did. This is great. Finally, Israel's winning a battle. Last battle they fought, how had it gone? If you're not what, what, what do you think about it? Um, does, it does it say how you died? I think it does. I'm thinking of the disease. Oh, I'm thinking of when they tried to go into the land and conquer it by themselves. They were defeated all the way to Hormah. I think that may have been the last time they had a, you know, battle. And so this is this is encouraging. It means God is with them. It's a boost to their morale. In fact, did you notice what they called the place name in verse three? Horma. Does that remind you of anything? Look at chapter 14 and verse uh, 45. When the Amalekites and Canaanites beat back the Israelites who tried to invade on their own, they beat them down as far as Horma. So they call this new place Horma. You know what Horma means? It means like destruction. So they got beaten at destruction and now they call this new place destruction. Now they, with the Lord's help, are the destroyers and not the destroyees. So this is really good news. God is now giving them the victories and this is just kind of foreshadowing the wonderful victories that they're going to gain when they enter the land of promise. Comments or questions on that? The book of Numbers was written after this happened, right? Sure. Sure. So, I don't know, it just seems the way it was phrased in chapter 14, it says they were beaten back to Horma, mm-hmm. but then in later, they name a place Horma. Mm-hmm. Couldn't it have just been the same place? Perhaps it could have. I doubt that it was, but perhaps it could have. Other thoughts, questions? Okay, uh, I'd like for us to read this next section. You may know this, but this is an interesting story. Somebody read verses 4 to 9. Then they set out from Mount 4 by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Did you say verse 10? Verse 9. And then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone is, who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he would look at the bronze snake and he recovered. So, what are the people doing again, again, again? Complaining about what this time? We have no food, we have no water, and we don't like the food that we have. Yeah, pretty much the same laundry list they've been using all along, don't you think? They might as well come up with something a little new, creative. But they, you know, they're going to die in the wilderness. Wish we could go back to Egypt. You know, we don't have any food. We don't have no water. This mountain is monotonous. You know, 
Wow. What, do you, what does that show you about these people? They are consistent. Yeah, good point. How about ungrateful? You know, they don't appreciate what God is doing. All they can do is complain about what they wish he was doing that he's not. So they are selfish. They are ungrateful. And so God's glory appeared. And, uh, well, I should, I should say, the Lord sent fiery serpents. Let me get the right chapter. In verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And, and they started biting the people and dying. Kind of reminds you of Genesis 3, where Satan used a serpent to deceive Eve. You know, maybe some snakes among them will help them to appreciate that manna and all the other things God has done. And so, lots of people start dying. Who do the people turn to for help? Moses, the very one they had been complaining against. Um, you know, sometimes suffering reorganizes our priorities. We may not like certain things, but in the view of what was happening, they decided they might could use a little help for Moses right here. And so they, they beg him to help. And what does the Lord tell Moses to do? Yeah, make a snake. How do you make a snake? What do they make it out of? Bronze. So this is not like a real snake. This is a you know bronze snake. Put it up on a pole, and what would happen? They need to look at it, and then they would live. Yeah, if they looked up at that snake, they'd live. This was a visual anti-venom. You know, it would cure you from snake bite just to look at it. That's interesting um, because I mean. Think about how that would have been. You know, who could look at it and live? People that were able to walk to get there. Yeah, exactly. You know, ultimately it would be a choice. Do you look at it or not? Anybody who looked at it who had been bit was cured. So this is really kind of a salvation, a healing that's available. But now you have to decide you're going to look at it and take advantage of what God had done through Moses. And uh, so, so they do. And, uh, you know, this becomes uh, a means of God curing them from the consequence of their sin. Comments and questions on that little story. Do you remember how Jesus used that story? Yeah, you have, they, they lived at the serpent on the pole and you look at the serpent and you live from the snake bite. So Jesus is lifted up on the cross and you look at Jesus to be healed from the sin. That's kind of a snake bite in its own way, isn't it? When you stop and think about it, spiritual snake bite. You know, so it's kind of a similar idea. When we turn to the Lord who's been crucified and to his blood, we are healed from the bite of the snake. So I think that's an interesting analogy. It's John chapter 3. Where Jesus actually uses it that way. Comments or thoughts on that story? So are you saying that the snake could represent like the sin that the people had done? I think the snake represents Jesus. Okay. Maybe these snakes represent the sin and its consequences. Yeah. I think it's painfully ironic that in a few generations they're going to be worshipping the bronze snake. Which is incredible. What in the world were they thinking? But that's 2 Kings 18.4 in Hezekiah's day. He ends up having to destroy the bronze snake because they turned it into an idol. 
you know, as if the bronze serpent had some power in and of itself. <laughs> Amazing. Other thoughts? Well, they must have carried it with them. Because they got it. Because how would they have worshipped it in the days of Hezekiah? You know? <laughs> okay, like whose who's job was that? Like, is that a holy thing? Yeah, I don't know who the snake carried. Did they carry it on a pole? Oh, that God told them to carry it. Do you think they did that as a reminder? I or? suppose maybe a memorial, maybe even appreciation to the Lord. But you know, we can take something that's innocent and transform it into something that's harmful. So I don't know. It is kind of weird, though, to be reading in Second Kings 18 and do a double take when Hezekiah has to destroy this bronze snake to keep it from being worshipped. 600 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time, too. It's exactly right. I wonder how that snake's still in good condition. It's bronze, you know. How man. much have they taken out of the temple by then? Yeah, I don't know. Other thoughts? Well, we've got some more of the trip. That's 10 to 20. I'm not going to really read through that. But it just kind of gives you a travel log. They're coming up on the east side of the Jordan River. And they get in verse 21. And they send messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, saying basically what they said to Edom. Just let us pass through. We're not going to mess with anything. But Sihon, when they were asked to do that, they go to war against Israel. That's kind of a radical uh, response to a simple request to go through your country. Just declare war all of a sudden. But they do. How does the war between Sihon and Israel work out? Who won? Israel. Yeah. God allowed Israel to defy, to, de to defeat Sihon, the Amorite king. Now that's interesting because um, in verse 26, Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all of his land out of his hand. And this little song talks about how Sihon had defeated Moab. Now, I want you to think about this a minute. We, we, can, we, can, logic, we can reason this out. First, Sihon defeats Moab. Then Israel defeats Sihon. Who ought to really be worried? Moab, you know, if Team A defeats, if, 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 if uh, Zeta Phi defeats Psi Beta, and Psi Beta defeats Arate, then what's going to happen between Psi Beta and Arate? No, between Zeta Phi. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you beat the king that beat the king, then presumably you're really stronger than that second king. It makes the Moabites very afraid of the Israelites. Because the Israelites conquered the king that conquered them. And that's going to set us up for chapter 22, where the Moabites are in panic mode. What are we going to do to deal with these Israelites? They even defeated, you know, the Sihon and the Amorites. What a, what a terrible, threatening thing it was for them. And so now, uh, Israel owns that Amorite territory that Sihon was in charge of. And look at 33 to 35, they also conquer Og, the king of Bashan. And so now we've got a large area on the east side of the Jordan River that belongs to Israel. 
That's the territory that eventually two and a half tribes will decide they want that land as opposed to the land on the west side of the Jordan River that was more the land of Canaan. So God is already giving them victories in this kind of uh, front porch of, of the land of Israel. Comments or questions on chapter 21? So are you saying like on the east side, that's like where Manasseh got and Reuben were? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. This wasn't actually part of the promised land, was it? I think that's a debatable question. I don't have a strong answer on that. Do you think maybe it could be to kind of build up the Israelites' confidence to I would think that new generation? I would think that certainly helped in that, yes. And because perhaps this was to some extent the promised land, and because they were being attacked, God is giving them the victories, and they end up, you know, starting with this land as kind of a beachhead to, to in, across the Jordan and invade. Sion and Honor just kings. Yes. Okay. Of the Amorites and of Beja. Other questions are coming. Well, chapter 22, we've got the problems the Moabite king faces with all these Israelites camped there across from Moab. And he's scared to death that the Israelites are just going to invade his territory. And uh, look at verse 3. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. You know, Moab is just scared to death. What are we going to do? And the Moabite king Balak hits upon a plan. What does he decide to do? Yes. How is he going to curse them? By asking a prophet. Yes. He's going to hire a professional in the field. You know, a, a you know, prophets in that day and time, particularly pagan prophets, were skilled in the art of cursing. You know, think about like an, an African curse or something where, where you put a curse on somebody, almost like putting a hex on somebody. You know, so so Balak sends some messengers to Balaam, this uh, distinguished, you know, soothsayer. And begs him, I need you to curse this nation for me. And he's offering him money and gifts and things like that to be able to do it. Because he doesn't know what else to do with the Israelites. Now, this is kind of interesting in this sense. Think about Balak trying to get Israel cursed. Do you remember any promises God ever made about uh, cursing the Israelites? What? About this, bless you, bless you, bless you, yes, look at Genesis chapter 12. God told Abraham and his descendants in verse 3, Genesis 12, 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. So, this is kind of a test of God's promise. Will God really curse the one who curses them? This is, if that's true, and Balaam curses, or Balak curses Israel, it's going to really uh, hurt them worse than it does Israel by that logic of the situation. So in a sense, you know, is God going to let some hotshot prophet curse his people when he said he wouldn't do it? But here's a famous prophet well known for guaranteed success, who's 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 uh, got as a client, the king of Moab, probably one of the best paying customers in the region. 
So you wonder, is he going to be able to curse him? And is the curse going to take effect? And is this going to put a you know, hex on the Israelites and enable the Moabites to win? That's what the king of Moab is making. We need a professional curse put on this people so that we can beat them. So, verse um, 5, he sends these messengers to Balaam and says, please come and curse them. And look at verse 8. What does Balaam tell these Balak messengers? Yeah, I'm going to have to talk to Lord about this. Now, what do you think about that? Find it odd. interesting that a man of God wants to curse God's people. Yes. And it would be odd for a soothsayer to consult God on who he would or would not curse. Well, perhaps so. I think this is a really good thing. Wow, he wants to know what God wants him to do. Isn't it a great thing when a man just wants to do what God says? Well, look at what God says. He says in verse uh, 9, Who are these men with you? And Balaam says, Balak, the son of Ziph, working in Moab, and so forth. And God said to Balaam, look at verse 12, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. How difficult was it to understand that? <laughs> yeah. Is Balaam supposed to curse them or not? Not. Now look, did you hear what Balaam said? In verse 13. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Now, alright, so you're in elementary school, and your best friend comes to the door and says, Can little Johnny come out and play? And little Johnny says, my dad won't let me. He says, I have to get my homework done first. Now, what do we assume about little Johnny's attitude about that order? Not happy. Yeah, he doesn't like it. That's why he says, dad won't let me. He says, I've got to get my homework done first. You know, little Johnny does not agree with that, but he doesn't have a choice. So that's what it looks to me like Balaam is saying here. Balaam doesn't say, listen, these are a blessed people. I would never curse them. He says, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Why would Balaam so much want to curse the people if he could? He was, there's a lot of money riding on this. I think Balaam was greedy. It doesn't really matter if the people are blessed or cursed by God. He'd like to have some of that money that Balak is offering. And so, okay, God won't let me go. Well, the messages go back to Balaam and they tell oh, Balak, sorry, I'll get those two confused. It, it goes back to Balak. He says, here's what Balaam said. Well, Balak is not a man to take no for an answer. In verse 15, Balak again sent leaders more numerous and more distinguished than the former, and they say, say to Balak, in verse 16, let nothing, I bet you, hinder you from coming to me, for I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. So what's Balak doing right here? Handing a blank check. What? Handing a blank check. You, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
upping the ante and handing him a blank check. You fill out the amount, Balaam. Just how much do you want for this job? Pay anything you ask for. Why is Balak so desperate? Because he knows they cannot win otherwise. Yeah, he is scared to death. The Israelites beat the people who beat him. So he feels like he's got to do this. So he's like, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't offer enough the first time. You filled in the amount. <laughs> you know, any kind of honorarium, you know that word like salary that you would like for this job would be only my pleasure to provide for you. Basically, Balak assumes that anybody can be bought if the price is right. You know, he assumes that this deal about God will let me is really kind of like a delay tax to see if he'll get more money or whatever. And so, uh, so these men, these more distinguished, honorable messengers come to Balaam and uh, say, you know, he really wants you to come and he'll pay your, you know, he'll, he'll make it worth your while. Balaam said, look at verse 18, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything either small or great, contrary to the matter of the Lord my God. What do you think about a statement like that? Pretty solid statement by itself. Right attitude. I won't sell out for any price. Doesn't make any difference how much money I'm going to get. I will not do something against God. That's the attitude we need to have. You know, which is worth more? A lot of money or the Lord? The Lord's got a lot more than just money to give us. So I think this is perfect. Ra-ra-Balaam. It doesn't matter how much he pays me. That's not the point. And then, did you notice what Balaam said as he continues in verse 19? What does he say? He says, stay here like the other men and I'll ask. Or see what I, the Lord will tell me. Yeah, I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. Why do you think he said that? Kind of reminds me of the double agent. Like he plays both sides. He plays the I'm all for God, and then but stick around and I'll see what I can do. Yeah. So what's motivating him? Yeah, I think so. He wants his money. So well, I'll just see what else the Lord might say to him. Is there anything else to be said? The Lord told him, I don't want you to go. There are blessed people. You're not supposed to curse them. Well, I'll see what else the Lord said. Now tell me, what has changed since the last time he spoke to God about it? The stakes. Yes, the money. There's nothing else that changed. Now it's just worth more money to it. So why would he assume that there is something else the Lord would say? I don't think that's a very good assumption. God told him. No, the salary's up. I'll find out what else the Lord might say. Do we ever do that? You know, I don't really like this. I don't see what else I can find in the Bible. <laughs> you know, I mean, let me illustrate it this way. You know, what if you were looking about what to do to be saved? 
And you run across a passage that says baptism also now saves us. We try again. And you run across a passage that says, let, uh, you know, uh, repent and be baptized. Forgive us your sins. That one. And, and finally, we run across this passage that says, believe in the Lord Jesus. And we say, yes, that'll work. I'll go with that one. Well, maybe you're the kind of guy who says, no, I don't like that one either. Keep reading. You, you run across this statement that says, blessed are the peacemakers. For they say, okay, now I've got it. Now, wait a minute. Are we supposed to just ransack the Bible until we find a verse that goes along with what we want, and now we've got it? Or are we really trying to understand what the will of God is? In this case, Balaam is just searching for some permission from God. I'll wait and see. Maybe he's got something else to say. Especially now that got a little bit more riding on this thing. And uh, I think that shows you Balaam's attitude. Do you have a thought or comment to this point? Then. In verse 18, is there a significance when he says, I could not go beyond the command of my Lord, my God, versus he would not? Maybe, maybe. God wouldn't let him versus he wouldn't want to. <coughs> maybe so. That would be interesting if that's what he's saying. He's right, <laughs> as it turns out, if that's what he means. So God came to Balaam at night, verse 20, and says what? Yeah, you can go. You know, I mean, what part of verse 12 had, uh, had Balaam not understood? But God says, no, it's fine. You can go with it. But only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. So Balaam goes with. Is Balaam planning on just speaking the word that God tells him? Doesn't seem like it in twenty and verse twenty-two. Well, you know that's not going to make him any money. That's not what he intends to do. But the Lord said yes. He doesn't listen to everything the Lord said. The Lord said, yes, you'll speak what I put in your mouth. Oh yeah, I can go. Come on, let's go. He gives the impression that his problems with the Lord have been worked out. Now you can go do it. And that's exactly what he tries to do. He is going. You, you think the Lord said he could go. The Lord said he could go and speak what God told him to speak. He's not going anywhere near that. He's going to say what he wants to say. That, well, he thinks he's going for that. He's going to get, pick up the tip. And so, you know, it's just an amazing story. As you know, he saddles his donkey, and the Lord's angry. He's got the angel with the sword drawn. You know, but the donkey can see the sword, and Balaam can't. So here's the angel with the sword in the, in the, in the you know, highway, and the donkey just veers off. And Balaam beats the donkey, gets back on the path, gets in a little narrow pass. And the donkey swerves and, and hits Balaam's foot against the wall. And he beats that donkey. You know, you know something I see right there? Balaam was all impressed that he had this ability to curse the people of God. You know, just to say something and, and the people of God are going to be, you know, lose and going to be defeated. He doesn't even have the ability to speak to his donkey and get the donkey to cooperate with him, much less curse the people of God. I think it's kind of interesting that that's the case. If you've got to even beat the donkey to make her stay on his path, 
How in the world does he think his word is going to curse the people God has blessed? Maybe that isn't that. It finally gets to the point that angel is sword drawn. It's right there in the past. What's going to happen if that donkey goes on? Slice for what? Yeah, I think we're going to uh, disconnect Balaam's head from the rest of his body. That is not designed for longevity. Right? But it hurt. So, really, the donkey's doing a favor. The donkey just plops down with Balaam right on. Ooh, Balaam is furious. Beats that donkey. Now, why is Balaam so upset? Exactly! We got money right now. This donkey, get up! Quite alone. All he can think about is that money. There's also the fact that he's being escorted by all these Moabite nobles. Good, good point. You hate for them to know you got a no count donkey you ride on. Won't cooperate with you. I think that the dollar signs in Balaam's eyes, he is obsessed. He is just like in a craze. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, have there ever been some time you like had someone who really, really, really wanted to go, and and it seemed like it took forever to get there because it just the the minutes drug on, just couldn't wait to get there. You know, you couldn't hardly do anything else for focusing on that. That's where Balaam is. All you think about is get there. He wants that money. He wants that money. He wants that money. This donkey, boom, 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 and finally, the most amazing part of the story is. When uh, Balaam strikes the donkey again with the stick, verse 28, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey. Now, it's kind of funny that the donkey talked, but I think it's even funnier that Balaam talked back. He didn't even realize he's arguing with the donkey. You know, he said, Because you made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. You know... Wow. I mean, how did Balaam not realize he was talking back to his donkey? <coughs> did they have talking donkeys back then? <laughs> what, what is it with Balaam? Determination. Why is he so determined? Because he's filled with himself. Money, money, the money. He is so focused on the money, he didn't even, how could it not dawn on you? You're talking to your donkey. <laughs> You're having an argument with your donkey. And, and unfortunately, the donkey's winning. <laughs> and the uh, dog said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? Balaam says, No. <laughs> it's just hilarious. You know, what in the world was Balaam thinking? You know, any of you got a pet? What do you got a pet of, Lauren? A toy rat terrier. Toy rat terrier? Yeah. Uh, has he ever talked to you? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Should have asked Lauren, I? <laughs> Not in English. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever talk back? Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> if it was a normal person and a normal animal, it would be kind of shocking if, if you carried on this conversation. Now, you may talk to your parents, but not like that. So it's like, wow. <coughs> and then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes up, finally, in verse 31. 
And here's the angel of the Lord with that sword drawn. Now, isn't it funny that Balaam had said, if I had a sword, I'd have killed you by now. Well, there was one quite close. But it wasn't destined for the donkey, let me tell you. <laughs> I think there would have been a different target on that sword. Do you see how inferior Balaam is to his donkey? He's more unseeing than the donkey. You know, the donkey could see things of God more clearly than this seer, Balaam. You know, I mean, do you really think of a donkey as the kind of an animal that has great insight? They are stupid as all get out. Yeah, that's kind of what we know about donkeys, isn't it? This animal that's kind of proverbial for dullness and stubbornness is actually more spiritual insight, spiritually insightful than Bethlehem. That's kind of bad when your donkey knows more than you do. And, you know, which one acts like the bigger beast? I say it's Balaam beating the thing. You know, it's like, boy, this donkey's more rational than Balaam. You know, so it's just really kind of funny. And, uh, you know, if he could have cursed the donkey, he wouldn't have needed the sword, right? <laughs> uh, so that kind of shows you that too. And uh, it looks to me like what the donkey does kind of foreshadows what Balaam does. You know, more or less, it's like God can put his words in the mouth of any old donkey, be it the animal or Balaam. <laughs> you know, that, this is kind of uh, interesting. I Thoughts and comments on that story. I love that story. I wonder if people with him heard the donkey or thought he was talking to <laughs> <laughs> Either way, it must have been quite a trip. I like how in verse 29 he says to the, to the donkey, he says, you've made me look foolish. I wish you had a sword. I'm thinking, <laughs> right, the donkey made you look foolish. All the donkey's fault. He does look foolish. She's got that part right. Mm. But I think that's a good way of like how, when, we will defend ourselves when we're doing something wrong and blame it on anything else besides ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Even if it's a talking donkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Other thoughts? Don't you like this story? Yeah, it's one of my favorite Bible stories. It seems to be God's more trying to teach Balaam a lesson than actually kill him, because I feel like an angel could outsmart a donkey if he really wanted to kill the rider. No doubt. Yes. Yeah, this is, this. you're right. It's exactly right. Other thoughts? Were the people who was with him, where were they? Would they have died too? I don't know the answer to that. Because, I don't know, it seems weird that Balaam would be ahead of them. Maybe they went through first. Maybe the angel pops up right after they get through. I don't know. Yeah. If they did go through first, then who did they think was talking? <laughs> Who are you talking to there? Oh, I'm just arguing with my donkey. <laughs> See the stubborn old rascal. <laughs> sure. So, you know, did you see what Balaam said then in verse 34? Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you were setting the way against me. Now then, if it's displeasing to you, I will go back. We'll turn back. What do you see in that? If it's displeasing to you, I will turn back. Right, knows. If it's displeasing, just exactly what does the Lord have to do to show it's displeasing? He's told him, 
you have the angel with the sword there. And, they, and Balaam said, well, if you really want me to, what does God say to that? Thirty-five. What does God say? Go with the men. Go, but you will only speak my word. Okay, really, God's just fine with Balaam going, <laughs> in one sense of the term. But he's not going to be able to say what he wants to. There's no use in going. He wants money because it's not going to work that way. But, so God says, "Go," and I'll just put the words in your mouth, and that's exactly what He does. Okay, questions and comments through thirty-five. So he goes, and when he meets Balak, Balak's like, what, what did it take you so long? <laughs> you know, and he comes here to where he can see the Israelites, and they build altars, and they sacrifice animals, and Balaam opens up his mouth. He's just, he's just moments away from a big reward. <laughs> and he opens his mouth to curse um, this, the people of Israel. And he says, from Aaron, this is 23-7, from Aram, Balak has brought me Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed and how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? And uh, he, instead of cursing them, he more or less blesses them. You know, he says they are the people that God has blessed. I can't curse them. Is that what Balaam wanted to say? You know, Balaam is trying to get the money. But he finally says, in verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. May I die like Israel does. Which is saying Israel is going to have a very great and honorable death. Now, if, if Balaam, Balaam had been able to curse and, and through his curse punish the Israelites, think about how bad that would have been for Israel. And Israel doesn't even know this is happening. God is protecting his people from a danger they never know about, at least not at that point in time. Do you suppose God could be protecting you from things sometimes that you don't even know? Which is kind of an amazing thought. And uh, so... This, this curse turns out to be a blessing and not a curse. Because Balaam couldn't control his mouth. He couldn't keep his mouth saying what he wanted it to. God overruled it and the blessing comes out. And so they go to a different place where Balaam could only see part of the Israelites. They offer more sacrifices. They're really trying to butter up God. And he opens his mouth and he says in verse 19... God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? You know, God isn't going to change his mind about this. That's what he's saying. Behold, I've received a command to bless. When he's blessed, then I cannot revoke it. So he's basically saying, God has decided to bless them, and there's not anything I can do to get them cursed. God is an unchanging God. You know, people are unreliable and fickle, but God's not anything like that. When God says something, it, it happens just the way he says it will. And so he says, you know, in verse 21, the Lord his God is with him. And verse 23, there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there divination against Israel. There's no way to curse them. You know, they are not a people to be cursed. So, I mean, how is this working out for Balaam? 
too good. And for Balak, not too good. He's ending up blessing them and not cursing them. It's like he's doing worse. Balak has just heard that God won't change his mind, but he's determined that God's going to change his mind. So he takes Balaam to a third place. And Balaam opens his mouth and talks about the glory of, of Israel in verses 5 and 6 and, and all the great things he's done and his strength. And in verse 10, this is 24.10, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said, I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. <laughs> I was going to pay you, but the Lord you keep talking about has kept you from receiving anything, which is really exactly what, uh, what ended up happening. Um, so Balak fires him. You know, he, he says, I'm done with this. But Balaam's not done. God speaks to him again without anything. He just, he just had to open his mouth again. And this time he talks about, in verse 17, this is 24, 17, this star and scepter would come out of Israel and would crush Moab and Edom and so forth. I think he's talking about Jesus. I think before he's sent home, God actually uses Balaam to prophesy about Jesus. Did Balaam intend to be prophesying about Jesus? Balaam would have had no way of knowing about Jesus. That's exactly right. And wouldn't have believed it if he had known it. So, when Balaam speaks this prophecy about Jesus, what do we know? Jesus isn't just important to the Israelites, but also to the world. That's right. And we know that God is just using Balaam's mouth. God's just sticking the words and making Balaam's mouth speak what he wants it to. Um, you know, would you say Balaam is a good choice to be a spokesman for God? In some ways, really not. They're not very good character. But then would you say the donkey's a very good candidate to be a spokesman for God? You know, Balaam is unworthy of having God's words pass through his mouth. But so are we. So is everybody that's revealed God's message. And, and the truth is, when God reveals his message, it doesn't really make any difference who the instrument is. God can even use a Balaam. God can use Balaam's donkey for crying out loud. He can surely use Balaam to speak his message. When, when, when the Bible is inspired by God, you know, it means that God ultimately sees to it that everything written is exactly what he wants written. I don't know if God sometimes just took over the pen and commandeered it and made him write what he wanted. Or maybe a lot of times he shaped their experiences and the things that they went through so that they would want to write the right thing at the right time. Maybe a combination of things. But the product is exactly what God wants. And it's not corrupted by passing through a human being. Balaam's a wicked, lousy, wretched, miserable mess, but he prophesies about Jesus because God put him in his put in his mouth and opened his mouth to make him talk like that. Isn't that amazing? Would you have expected God to use a man like Balaam in this way? Pretty crazy. Thoughts and comments about that. Um, in my version, the first verse of chapter 24, it says that Balaam did not try to use any magic when he saw the Lord wanted to bless them. Do you know why it would use that terminology? Yeah, I mean, he probably had done some sort of divination procedures. We don't really know what those were, but apparently this time he tries it without. 
Do you think that was like for a show, or do you think he actually believed in that one? No. You know, I think it's possible that sometimes people really do believe, you know, that they're doing something from God. I think there's a lot of times when people are just in for the money, and they know it's a trick and a fraud. So I don't know in Balaam's case, he is awfully money hungry. Yeah. So since Balaam goes to God, but also uses divination, is he a prophet of God, or is he just some divinator that happened to go to God? I just don't understand that. Well, let me put it in a different way. What is a prophet? Someone that God speaks to. Someone God speaks to. A spokesman for God. Was Balaam a prophet? In that sense, he was. In that sense, Balaam's donkey's a prophet. <laughs> because God spoke through them. Now, was he like a prophet that was seeking to serve God and live for God? It sure doesn't make any But he's a prophet in the sense that he's a spokesman for God. You remember how Caiaphas in John 11 talks about how one man should die for the nation and not the whole nation die. He didn't know what he was saying. You know, he didn't realize that he was actually prophesying about Jesus dying. He was a prophet at that moment. God spoke through him. It certainly doesn't mean he dedicated his life to God and was really giving himself to God as a prophet. So I think it may depend on your definition of prophet. I, I don't think that Balaam was, you know, like a long-term man of God seeking to speak the words of God. I think he's a man who God forced him to speak his words, and he was kind of an involuntary prophet for those times. So sure, I guess my question is more of, what was his job prior? Because his first reaction was, I gotta go ask God. I know. I don't know why he said that. I don't know if he knows the Israelites are the people of God, so he's got to consult with their God, or exactly why that is. Yeah, it's a good question. But he appears to me to be more of a pagan soothsayer by trade. That would be my guess. But some of those things, I don't think are just real clearly spelled out. Good question. Other thoughts or questions? Would God have ever used pagans? Well, like, I guess he did with Balaam. But like, did their stuff work? Like, why did they call them? <laughs> well, I mean, come on. Do do people use psychics today? Yes. And faith healers, some places. And, you know, a whole lot of other hocus pocus sometimes. I mean, do people believe in horoscopes? Yeah. I mean, there are people who are absolutely convinced, even in 21st century America, that, you know, certain things are definitely, these are really true. So, there's a lot of gullible people in the world. Other thoughts or comments on what we know, what we know about Balaam to this point? You guys are doing really well with staying awake and learning. I am impressed. If you ever need to get up or walk around, feel free to do that. But you guys are really, <coughs> you've been more awake than I have, so <laughs> impressed. Um, so, now, here's the, there's kind of a rest of the story with Balaam. It's a little bit harder to piece together. In chapter 25, verse 1, when Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the peoples ate and bowed down to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Balaam, before the Lord was angry against Israel. They involve themselves in idolatry, and we'll see in just a second in this chapter that they involve themselves in sexual immorality, 
What we didn't realize, maybe at first, is that Balaam was behind that. Now look for a minute at Numbers chapter 31. Numbers 31 and verse 16. Behold, these caused, he's talking about the Moabite women, these caused the sons of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now, here's what it looks like happened. I'm putting together also passages like Revelation 2 that mention Balaam in the New Testament, some others as well. Balaam can't control his mouth. He can't get them cursed, but he still wants that money. So it looks to me like he tells Balaam, he advised him, look, here's what you can do. If you will infiltrate Moabite women among the Israelite men and, and tempt them to bow down to idols and be sexually immoral, God will curse this people. And that's exactly what happened. So Balaam found a back doorway to get the money. You know, he, he finds out that through you know, giving counsel to tempt the Israelites to turn away from God, that that indirectly will lead to God cursing the people. And that's what happened. Looks to me like Balaam found another way to get the money. And so what happens in chapter 25 was ultimately because Balaam advised him. He said, I can't curse him directly. God won't let me. But you can get him cursed if you'll do that. Does that make some sense? That's the part of the Balaam story that's not as well understood because you have to kind of piece together several passages to get it. So, what happens here is bad. The Moabite women just come in among the Israelite men and they start worshiping the other gods. You know, you can get a hex or an invasion to overcome Israel, but you get Israel to fall into sin and God will punish them. Balaam succeeded in having him cursed after all. So God was angry and had the leaders killed because they allowed the people to commit immorality and idolatry. Now look at what's up they read, chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. All things. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and pierced both, both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus a plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Okay, now... Things got so bad, there was this Israelite man, his name we find out later was Zimri, actually just flaunts the fact that he's got a Midianite woman. He just brings her right there, right in front of everybody. He's not supposed to have a Moabite woman, and he's just got her. I mean, he's not like married or whatever it doesn't look like. And he brings her into his tent. He's just a flagrant act. Uh, of, of sexual immorality right there in front of everything. And, and this is just really upsetting. Phineas, who's Eliezer's son, Aaron's grandson, he takes his spear, he comes into their tent, and he pierces them. 
I don't mean, I don't want you to think of this in a graphic sense, but you understand, to get them both at once, what they were doing. And so he spears them in the very act, and that stops the plague. You know, the fact that he executed God's judgment against these two, uh, the Israelite man and the Midianite woman, her name was Cosby, you know, that, that's the sacrifice of those sinners caused God to stop the plague. It's a good thing Phineas did that. I mean, you know, think about how sometimes God says that churches have to withdraw from flagrantly immoral people to preserve the purity of the body. You can't just allow some terrible sin to just go on and not think anything about it in the Lord's church. Sometimes those people have to be punished so God doesn't turn against everybody. That's kind of the idea here. Phineas, Eliezer's son, kills these two, and, and that stops the plague. It stops God's judgment and punishment because we're eradicating the sin among the people. And God was very pleased with this. You might have thought, boy, Phineas is getting carried away with himself, isn't he? But God says in verse 11, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, and so forth. And so God gives him a covenant of peace and a covenant of perpetual priesthood. So God is very happy. Phineas's intervention probably saved, who knows, maybe thousands of lives. There are situations that sinners will have to be removed from a congregation. You know, we're like, oh, but I feel so sorry, but I like them. You know, if somebody... Well, look at 1 Corinthians 5. I mean, not look at it literally, but you know the story. There was a man in 1 Corinthians 5 living with his stepmother, for crying out loud, a Christian in the congregation, and they weren't doing anything about it. They were like, oh, everything's great here. Paul said, it delivered to Satan and don't associate with it. You couldn't have a person like that in the congregation. There are a lot of churches today who would just tolerate somebody to be in a clearly unlawful marriage. Or, or somebody to be doing some obviously sinful thing and they refuse to repent. Oh, well, we're broad-minded here. You know, we're tolerant. Well, that gets God's wrath. He doesn't want us to have that attitude. So that's what happens. That's the sequel to the Balaam story. Balaam gets him cursed another way and 24,000 die until Phineas uh, stops the play by killing uh, Zimri and Cosby. Comments and questions on chapter 25. What is the fulfillment of... Um, Hi. Hi. Do you need something? Wait, is this the wrong one? Oh, man. I'm sorry. It might be. I don't know where you're going. I'm sorry. Is this the right one? I don't know. Do you have a 9 and 10-year-old, sir? Uh, you may be here, but it's not yet. Is it? Am I wrong about the time? I don't know. I'm just lost. Oh, it may be here later. Oh. Yeah, a little bit like me, but about uh, 10, 15 minutes. No problem. <laughs> you get an extra passenger. Uh, 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 what was I saying? Oh, uh, when yeah. was the fulfillment for Phineas? Do, do what? When did, how did Phineas's promise get fulfilled? Um, Not there always being a priest. Well, I mean, he, he continued to be a priest. More than that, I don't know. It's not like... David or something, because like, I was thinking of all the other no. times, whatever it was like. Yeah, I would say not, but I don't have a real strong statement about all that. Well, I was just saying, so there are churches that will just tolerate 
you know, immorality to go on. And, and we're broad-minded, we're, we're good, you know, everybody's fine, we just believe everybody ought to do what they want to. Well, that's kind of the attitude they were having here. And God was very upset about it. And Phineas saved the day for the people, for the nation, by killing them. Other thoughts are coming. So. How did he know that killing them was the right thing to do? Well, they were in flagrant sin. I mean, this is, this is just outrageous behavior. I mean, it's like, I mean, how would we know that the right thing to do would be rebuke and even discipline somebody who was doing some terrible thing? Well, everything in the Bible indicates this is an outrage against God. And Phineas is, he is the priest. So he's responsible to protect the congregation from the wrath of God. I think it's crazy that the people that are just about to start fighting, they're hanging out with. Like, yes. they shouldn't even be yes. close to their camp, much less in their camp. I know. It's crazy. Well, it would be like an army, you know, in, in enemy territory, you know, fraternizing with the enemy, we say, you know, uh, making the enemy their best friends. How successful are you going to be fighting against people when they suddenly become your best friends? So, yeah, we've got to make a clear line of distinction between the friend and the foe. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Well, and in chapter 26, this really shows you we've got a new generation because God tells them again to take a census. This is the next generation. We're taking a new census of the people who are going to be in the promised land. Not so much just for how many soldiers there will be, but also to divide the promised land among the different sized tribes. And so it's interesting to compare the size of the tribes with chapter 1 Reuben and Gad suffer a slight decline, Ephraim and Naphtali a greater decline, and Simeon a decisive cut. But uh, maybe that's uh, because you've got uh, a lot of the uh, people of Simeon uh, that, uh, that died in the judgment connected with Zimri and, and the Midianites. I don't know that for sure. Judah, already the largest, enjoys a, sharp, a slight increase in the number. But basically... Even though God has killed off that, that uh, older generation, the number is almost exactly the same. It was 603,000-something, now it goes to 601,000-something. So it's essentially the same amount. A net decline of only 0.3%. Despite God wiping out that entire generation, God is still blessing them. And once they've accomplished the recount, then they're going to actually divide the land by the size of the tribes. So we are now in kind of this mode of being ready to invade the land. You know, we, we counted them one time, that invasion didn't happen. <laughs> now we're counting them again to invade. Do you know roughly like how many people 0.3% would be? Um, a couple thousand. Yeah, a couple thousand out of 600,000. So, I mean, really, that's an amazing thing. God, God really is with his people, even when he's punishing them. He has continued to bless them and multiply them. And they got, did all that in the wilderness, where you would think even the conditions would be so harsh, they'd have a hard time keeping up the number. Other comments or questions? When they divide up the land, 
into territory. They're going to divide it among the different tribes and then within the tribes among the family. Now, what would they do when somebody died and they owned land? To, to their son. Yeah, the first one would get a double portion, but they pass the land down to their sons. What would that ensure? The family would grow and yeah, the, the property would stay in the family. That's what God intended. Now, what if you had to sell your property? Then you would get it back on the seventh year. Then you would get it back on the fiftieth year, the jubilee year. God arranged to where you could never sell your land permanently, so you'd always keep that family in possession of that territory. But we come in chapter twenty-seven. To a situation that's a bit of a problem. The problem will be there's this one guy who only had daughters. He had no sons. He had five daughters. He didn't have a single son. There's nobody to pass the property to to keep it in the family. So the daughters come to Moses and say, what about us? Can we not inherit this property and pass it on to our sons? And so we're going to deal with that question. We'll work on that tomorrow and try to finish the rest of the numbers. You're out maybe three minutes early.